And the thing that worries me and I think is so valuable about reading these books is that we're seeing the exact same thing happen right now. That the we're in a crisis of capitalism and so we're seeing the same response. We're seeing the rise of fascism and that's going to be more popular than the left. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash forgottencornerpod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. We acknowledge that the Forgotten Corner occupies unceded Indigenous land. We acknowledge that the Blackfoot Confederacy never surrendered its land in the signing of Treaty 7, but agreed to share it. The Forgotten Corner sits on Treaty 7 and Treaty 4 territory, traditional lands of the Siksika, Kainai, Pakani, Stony Nakoda, and Sutina, as well as the Cree, Sioux, and the Soto bands of the Ojibwa peoples. We also honor and acknowledge that we are the Métis Nation within Region 3. The Forgotten Corner is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. If you'd like to check out other progressive podcasts from across the country, click the link we provide in our show notes. My name is Roberta Lexier, and I'm here alongside my bestie in person (laughs) in this place together, co-host of this show, Scott Schmidt. Brought to you from my basement, even. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Like... We had to. Uh, we had someone at the door checking your vaccine um, verifications. Yeah. And I appreciate you guys having those ready. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's crazy here right now because like we're literally sitting here in my basement, and Mo's here in my basement, and there's no Jeremy. So if you look at it, like we're checking off all the best boxes you could have in a cup. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. It's actually weird. It's the first time he's never been here. Jeremy Appel, our co-host, has um, in Toronto this week. Uh, so if you want to ransack his place, his address is uh, <laughs> Mo Cranker, editor and producer, and in the room with us as well. How are you, buddy? I am doing fantastic, Scott. How are you? I'm all right. Yeah, I'm pretty good. Yeah, it's the weekend, so I thought you handled the opening of that of the episode really well, Roberta, uh, holding my cat the entire time. (laughs) Yeah, I have this wonderful joy of this cat that I love that saves me all the time, and she's just in my arms. She'll be here the whole time, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she doesn't get talked about too much on the episode, but she's basically the most cuddly animal that ever existed. So I'm glad to see that you're getting some comfort from that. So today, what is today? I guess I'm taking over here. I'm sorry. You You go ahead. You're the host. (laughs) I am the host. Yeah, I'm just Back here. off, buddy. <laughs> You're just here to look pretty. Come on. <laughs> oh, shit. I better go. For, I got to go for a few minutes. <laughs> so we're here to do our, I guess, third installment of our book club. Um, our first one was introducing the, the book club. And then last book club, we talked about the first part of our book, Canada in the World by Tyler Shipley. Um, Scott missed that, um, which we'll test him on later and make sure he, he's <laughs> up to date. Um, but today what we're going to do is pick up on uh, part two of uh, Tyler Shipley's book, uh, Canada in the catastrophe years is this part so buckle up it's going to be an interesting one so i have a bunch of questions for you guys but i just want to start by bringing us up to speed of where we were um, in the book and what has kind of happened in our narrative so far Um, so we started last week with part one and that was really about kind of the establishment of canada as a country Um, the uh, european nations that that came over here um, that basically destroyed the indigenous uh, communities that lived here and then created this country known as canada Um, and now we're going to go from here out into the world so what the hell does this country do once we're a country and we have to participate in the world i gotta quickly just say something about the first part just in the sense that this last week there was a a letter to the editor's submission from somebody wasn't even from medicine hat but uh uh, anyway it was describing um how i was describing canada like how we got here as just like 
um, I think it said like this, we, humans naturally migrate and that we just came here because of like, of this natural migration and like, we're here now. So like we need to, and it was just, I thought about the book because of course, um, the whole thing about the first part is sort of unwhitewashing the history of, right. Of what, how Canada came about and the, um, way that we were taught in school. Anyways, go ahead. No, absolutely. That's perfect. I mean, because the reality is, is we've been taught a particular history that's very limited to <laughs> to one p perspective. And that really just gives this sense that, you know, this place was empty and we could just come and this is all natural and normal. So we now have this country. It's founded on this colonial capitalist system that we talked about last episode. Um, and now we start interacting with the world around us. So I thought I'd just start with a, a question kind of similar to what I did last week, which is, what did you know about World War One? What is the story of World War One that you kind of learned in school or, um, you know, learned from watching Hockey Night in Canada or... <laughs> Or whatever else. Don Cherry. Yeah. Mo texted me when he got to the Don Cherry part and <laughs> I was intrigued. So Mo, why don't we start with you? What do you what kind of history of World War One did you know? Like what was our role in it? What kind of came out of it? What's important about World War One for Canada? Just for Canada? Mm-hmm. Cause I know I was taught in school that it started uh, like Archduke Franz Ferdinand. It was the member of the Black Hand. Uh blew up a car or something and then that was the tipping point um but yeah i know i learned a lot less about world war one than i did world war two world war two yeah. yeah and because world war two is far more big and exciting and good as the book will tell us but yeah um I'm trying to think. No, I mean, that's also yeah. super yeah. interesting, right? Like, and we'll, we'll talk about maybe why World War II is more in the in the narrative, but that you didn't really even know much about that we were in it, that we did much, you know, it was just kind of a, a thing that happened. Trench foot. I, okay. saw, I looked at photos of trench Gross. foot in school. <laughs> <laughs> that's disgusting. Yeah, that's probably the biggest thing that stuck with me. Yeah, interesting. Lots of people died, trench foot and trench warfare. Yeah, okay. What about you, Scott? What kind of story of World War One do you know, or did you learn? <clears throat> well, I can't right now. I can't really piece together fully whether, like, I because I know over the last, you know, ten or fifteen years, as I've sort of um, more unraveled, like just our system itself and kind of where it came from. I know I've kind of gotten more of an idea that our wars. Uh, the world wars and any other ones that we fought weren't necessarily about protecting our freedoms and things like that. Right. So I knew I can't remember, but I do remember sort of obvious, like anything else, what you did learn about it was just triumphant. Right. And it, it was always, we were just taught everything in a good versus evil kind of way. It was always just good versus bad. It always just felt like, I don't know. I remember feeling comfort as a kid in the fact that like we were the good guys, you know, and that was kind of how we, we're, we're taught that back then and obviously the part in the book where it gets to Vimy Ridge and just how we all actually learn about it I mean yeah I, I, I don't know I don't remember much about what we learned about that battle except for to say that we've never ever looked at that we've never talked about that battle in any other way other than like Canada did this like absolutely amazing thing that was like this huge turning point in the war blah 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 and it was like we did did this thing no one else could do and I mean it's like I knew going into reading this book that the whole point was <laughs> it was going to unravel all that you know right like it's going to remind you that that's not necessarily how things were and whatever but when it got to the part in the book I mean I'm skipping ahead here but when I just talked about like how Vimy Ridge to like everyone else that participated in that war, they don't look at it as a, even an important battle. Like whether you, whether you look at the two sides as good or bad, or just two capitalistic powers having a fight, no one thinks that that battle was actually all that important for the war. And so it was just one of those things where like, I always gave like the Americans this huge sort of like tarry, like, um, aspect of their record for the way that they uh promote how good they are at everything and it just reminded me in like that moment that like canada does that 
obviously too uh, overplays our hand of how good we were. Anyways, that's badly, but no, no. It's um, I think you know it's interesting to to think about how we construct a national identity and a, a sense of who we are as a country. And you know, you talk about Vimy Ridge, and and it's always sort of the central piece of of that story. That um, you know, the story I learned was um, you know these Europeans came over, they um, settled this land, this vast land um they you know made <laughs> empty, empty, empty land, land. <laughs> um and they they made all these great innovations to be able to do this um you know they built a railway they connected places we built a wheat um you know basket in the west we did all these things to kind of kind of build this nation and then the way we really become like a nation on the on the global scale at the level of other independent important nations is through Vimy Ridge that's our moment where we become a nation. And so, you know, I think it's worth, and Shipley talks a lot about the kind of um, mystique of Vimy Ridge. Um, Vimyism, I think he calls it, yeah. where it's like a thing that we've constructed around our, our identity. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Vimy Ridge was basically um, a battle in the First World War. Um, from a Canadian perspective, it's been said to be kind of this battle that, or this territory nobody else could win. Um, you know, the, the British had tried, the French had tried, everybody was trying to win this, this little piece of land. Um, and then all of a sudden a Canadian division was formed, all Canadians, so not mixed together with other um, empire soldiers and they take this in you know one day victory is ours <laughs> huzzah we're better than everybody else which is like literally how Don Cherry does describe it, right? Best soldiers in the world. Anyways, go ahead. No, exactly. Like, so there's this this story being told that, you know, we become a nation in this such important battle. Um, it's it's really our moment of, of coming into our own is sort of how it's seen. Yeah. So what does Shipley say instead? What does he say about the battle for Vimy Ridge? How does he kind of challenge that narrative that Don Cherry and others put forth in our public in our pop culture well go ahead because i already kind of said well, we something kind of just like about i it, think I... it's just rather insignificant in the grander scheme of things yeah and that it's just more of a nothing than a something in context of world war one Right, so it's this tiny little war. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't do anything. Trench warfare was basically tiny just little like battle. We should say battle. the war was pretty big. The war was pretty big. The battle at Vimy Ridge was tiny. Yeah, um, but it was basically like this constant back and forth. We'll like change a couple kilometers of land back and forth right. for four years. Is basically what happened in all of World War One. So what then does that say about how we see Canada? The, how the story of Canada has been constructed? Why would Vimy Ridge? be something we want to grasp onto as something awesome. Like, what does that say about the kind of Canada people want there to be? Well, I just think that, like, it just goes back to maybe what I was saying, like, when I just distinctly remember in school, everything came at us from the angle that we were the good guys, right? And so, I mean, think about it. Just even in, like, uh, like the Summit series, right? The 72 Canada versus Russia, right? That's that's always been looked at as like more than a hockey win, right? Because we beat this like big bad Soviet power, right? That we were sort of at odds with at the time with the Western world, all that, right? So it's always just been given to us in this we're the good triumphant like people right like we've done nothing but great things for the world and like everything we do just sort of makes everything better and we've always strived for this thing and i mean like i said i wasn't um shocked to learn have the truths unraveled right but it's still sort of even as you read the book even if you kind of know what to expect it's still sort of like eye-opening this part i think like every step of the way of just why those wars really existed in the first place and why we were actually there and it just the truth is often um it's just not as exciting as we want it to be right <laughs> yeah you know it's exciting to say we won this big battle we all came to like it's a great story right all these canadian soldiers come together to fight together and they win this battle that nobody else could have could win what a great story except that it's all kind of garbage and it's just a story it's a story yeah right i mean it happened 
Like the, it totally did. The battle did, did happen. happen. Yeah. We did take that piece. And like I said, look around the world. Other people don't view that the same way we try to tell each other. And I just think, like, it's, you know, there's going to be people that probably listen to this and, you know, or if they do listen to this and are very patriotic about Canada that will not like to hear what we're talking about, right? And, like, because, especially if they haven't read the book or whatever, they're just going to be like, oh, those, like, you're tearing down the... But, the, I mean, unfortunately, like, you can't undo what, like, actual truth is about what things happen. And once you've sort of, I guess, like, I don't want to say, like, get, once you've at least uh, come to the realization that it, it makes sense that you are country would feed you things in a pro country version in schools or anything else like once you understand that obviously that's going to happen then you can go like logically you can understand that okay these stories that we celebrate on november 11th and we relive and we talk about how we, it's you can understand that like actually the truth is that we probably exaggerate the shit out of those things and this is one great example where canada the story over time and i think what's really interesting about the book is that for anyone that thinks we're being unpatriotic or whatever, it was the soldiers themselves that fought that, that were the ones that shaped the actual truth of what it is, which is that they didn't really know what they were doing there. They don't look at it. They looked at it anyways, like babbling again, but <laughs> it was a good part, this book. Yeah. I wonder, and maybe I just didn't read the page, but do other countries have their own Vimy Ridge where it's a different battle that they lie or not lie, <laughs> exaggerate yeah exaggerate yeah, to their yeah. citizens well i mean this is a, a normal part of nation building that you have to build these myths and these stories that create um an idea of what we're supposed to think about our country um you know and so for the united states their story is very much about revolution and overthrowing these dictators and getting freedom and um you know they have this very particular story and we talk a lot about how canada doesn't really have that story we don't we're not as, quote, patriotic, right? We're not as vocal about it as the Americans. But we have all of it built in, and every country does. Because to have a nation, have a built-in sort of sense of, of nation, um, com national community, you have to have these stories, and you have to have these um, battles. And so they may be exaggerated often. You know, one that would be interesting to look into, I don't know much about it, but the big war battle for the Australians is Gallipoli. Um, and there's a very famous, um, very famous, I mean, it's Mel Gibson, so I want to vomit, but um, there's a movie about Gallipoli, um, and <laughs> it's probably quite similar. I mean, I'm not sure how how effective that battle actually was. Like, was it as, actually as big as they say? But I'm sure at some level it's exaggerated to be their national story. And what I find interesting about Vimy is that it's the kind of Canada they're trying to tell us we are is a military power, right? Like basically what they're saying is that if Canadians band together and we work together, we can defeat any enemy on the battlefield. That to me is the story of Vimy, right? Like nobody else could do it, but when we joined together, we did it. Now, what does that say about us as a country? Like that's saying that we are strong military force right like we can do that is that the kind of country but a that force of good too right, right? Exactly. like we're a force for good and so that's what that's what always paints and it's always painted around like you gotta admit like whether like whoever is listening that we painted around our like the, our capitalistic society right capitalism and democracy are thought of as one thing good and capitalism and democracy are always thought as one thing right and these are how they're presented and so um i think that the fact that like he uh, shipley reminds in this book very much that both in the first and second world war these were capitalistic powers who were literally fighting because the nature of capitalism is to expand and they were both expanding and i when we get to the world war ii or whatever that's my f like favorite part <laughs> about that is just the whole learning about how like um 
how okay we were with what Germany was doing until they... Until we weren't. Till they wanted... Yeah, until yeah. it was our territory, British Empire territory, yeah. that it was fucking with, right? So, anyways. <laughs> when we get to that one. <laughs> so, I mean... Mo, you mentioned that the part of what you knew about um, World War One was that it sparked by this assassination of Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke. Um, most of us don't know what the hell that even has to do with anything. Like, I didn't really know until I had to start teaching this. Like, who even is Archduke Franz Ferdinand? I knew there was a band. Right on. There's a band called Franz Ferdinand. Like, that's good how band. I remember. They are yeah, a very good band. Good band. Okay. <laughs> they are. Um, but, I mean, it's this weird thing. How does an assassination... I mean, I don't think we need to talk about how all the dominoes of Europe fall. It's I don't mean it that way. But what are the actual causes of World War One? Like, how does this assassination of a relatively small political figure in the Baltic explode into a war? What is World War One about? Like, what's going on here? Well, I think, from what I remember, it was exactly, in the same sense, it was sort of the same thing as World War Two. Like, it's just G British and German empires meeting in a one of us is going to be the dominant. And that's one of the other lessons I like about this book is that Two capitalistic powers can't exist as equals. Someone always has to be the superpower, and we call it, like, we think about it as their armies, but it's really the economic power, right? And it was really just German's empire, Germany's interests of a capitalistic empire, and Britain's interests of a capital empire coming together in, like, two immovable objects, right? Yeah, basically. I mean, this is the thing is Britain had had this massive, powerful empire for centuries, really. I mean, they were dominating the world. That was their thing. They just controlled everything. And then Germany's starting to rise over here and say, huh, maybe we want to expand a bit more and we want more colonies and we want more resources and we want more markets and more labor and we want all those things that we need. And we talked about last episode that are the core of capitalism, that you need wage labor, you need resources, you need these markets to sell to. So Germany starts kind of expanding its tentacles out and Britain's like, wait a minute, you don't get to push. We control this capitalist system. And so like, I was never taught that there was anything about the economic system involved in World War II. I learned that it was like these weird military alliances that had been built across the, the yeah. continent that when Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, it kind of set off this thing that like one country promised to support Serbia and one country promised to support the others. Right. And then they all just kind of piled on top. But what Shipley, I think, does really well is to lay out that, yeah, that was all happening, but that it's part of a bigger process that's going on, which is colonial capitalism, to bring it back to what his first part was about. That this is about empires trying to build and expand, and they're competing with each other. So what's Canada's role in this? Since this is about Canada, what's Canada doing in World War I then? If Britain and Germany are kind of at loggerheads and being like, I want to be an empire. No, I'm the empire. Where does Canada fit in this? Why are we sending soldiers off to fight in these battles? Well, weren't like weren't we in that stages still like almost talking about having a Canada Canadian empire of its own, right? Like weren't there initially like aspirations from early Canadians of us being the dominant center of it all? Absolutely. I mean, this is Shipley talks about it. I mean, there's always been that power of the U.S. So I don't know that it was ever we were going to be the most powerful, but a sense that we were going to compete in this. And he talks about how Canada at the time of World War One had colonial ambitions, mostly in Latin America and the Caribbean, that we did want to expand out and we were looking for territories. We kind of settled our area and we were good at it because we'd done all of this, right? That's how he connects the indigenous stories from the beginning to this war, war stuff is that Canada learned how to destroy indigenous groups, right? Canada was very yeah. skilled at building a military and police force to wipe out colonial, uh, the people in the colonies that they want to take over. Well, and I can't remember if it anymore right now, if it was stuff that happened before and right after the first or second world war 
where we were just sort of like off like well right because it was the spanish civil war that was right before the second world war yeah. right but we basically we had gotten our feet wet in like south africa and places going in and helping to essentially show other countries how to eradicate indigenous people right and how to like that we were I, that's another thing i couldn't but i always thought because we were we're such a young country right so i never saw us as somebody that was out there leading others to i thought like if anything we learned from other people's like bad tactics but we were actually out teaching people how to be shitty to an entire group of people because we had so successfully emptied an entire continent of humans genocide is the word you're looking for <laughs> yeah i mean yeah it's, it's crazy that we can like have a report come out about that and then just now we're going to argue like white people will argue about whether it's that like if that's if that's an appropriate term like will trudeau call it genocide will he admit that yeah it's yeah like yeah. um it's all big controversy yeah, yeah. I, I mean this is the thing is that we <laughs> Uh, this is not the history I was taught, but now if we look at it, you know, you realize Canada's skill that it developed as a nation was how to destroy an indigenous population and take over that land. And during a colonial expansion, that's very valuable yeah. information, right? So Shipley talks about in the South African War how it's Canadians that construct construction, uh, construct, construct concentration camps and shove people indigenous people that into stairs those fella. concentration camps yeah it was stairs, william stairs or something yeah he sucked a lot <laughs> there's like, a few individuals Jesus. in here that suck really Holy badly fuck, we are bad like we did but they're some... building concentration camps this is mm -hmm. before world war ii canada's involved in that process because we're really good at destroying indigenous populations yeah it's our skill, you There's know? There's got to be a school or something, like a middle school named after stairs or something. Somewhere. Oh, there must yeah, be. There, yeah, there has to be a school. The name sounds so familiar, school. right? But that's the thing is like, I was like, this guy's got to be honored somehow oh, around of course, here. Because he's he's a, like just a, huge a giant military. piece Absolutely. of shit. Like King. King sucked. Mackenzie King. Holy yeah. shit. <laughs> Man, a little spoiler <laughs> alert. We should just get on to World War well, II. Well, World War II was the best so part of this part because... I think, sorry. No, go ahead. Say what you want to say. I just then. think the thing that was, um, I had recently, and I mean like in the last 10, 15 years since my, I've really started to kind of focus on trying to learn true history. And maybe that's because my bestie's a fucking history teacher. <laughs> but um, nonetheless, I had already sort of seen some things that talked about uh, the United States um, sort of, What's the word I'm looking for with how they kind of were buddies? They liked fascism. They were kind of like not really appeasement. Is appeasement. That the like they were. How I always kind of learned recently, sort of that the Americans were sort of uh, it was they were a weird foe of the Germans at the end of the day because they were actually very uh, cordial and uh, like were into the. I was really blown away i guess reading this book to see just how exactly like that canada was like just how fucking like the stuff about king's like ad or like admiration of hitler was unbelievable to me so anyways that's what i just think like it was shocking to learn how just exactly like that we really were yeah, I think, you know, it's it, there's a big chunk that Shipley includes about um, Mackenzie King um, after he meets Hitler, he writes in his diary, and these are just, like, actual quotes from his diary about how, like, awesome Hitler is and, like, how great this is. And so this, I mean, I think World War II is, is such a difficult one in so many ways. Um, and I think we need to talk about the period before World War II for a second as well, because, um, you know, it's there's this big chunk in the middle where we often talk about the Great Depression and other sorts of things happening. But Shipley takes kind of a different approach to it. And that is that he's really looking at the kind of class dynamic of what's happening in that interwar period of like the, the rise of this um, quite powerful left 
left in many ways in Europe, um, and then the reaction to that. So first, let's think about the left. What's going on? Like, do we have examples of where the left is rising and gaining power, or workers, unions? In Europe, kind of after World War One. Well, it was like here, right? It was like 1919, general strike in Winnipeg, yeah. and like there were, like there's all that, like it's there were labor uprisings, right? Because it was very uh, um, heavy anti-worker back then, right? Absolutely, yeah. So what about big kind of national or... Are we talking Spain here? So we could talk about Spain. There's one before that, though. If we talked about the Russian Revolution very much, I mean, we did a little bit in the last episode, but... Was I mean, it Russia? Yeah. Is, is it this Russia? like the Bolsheviks? Well, let's get and... to Spain in a second, but I just, I think it's important to mention that, you know, there's this big specter in the world at this time, starting in 1917, of an actually successful Bolshevik revolution. Now, successful is going to be in quotation marks there because what whatever we mean by that but uh you know technically uh, a anti-capitalist movement had been successful in russia so then we start to see these other kinds of movements start and then we get to spain so anybody have a sense of what happened in spain had you ever heard of or had you heard much about what was happening in spain i can't remember when i was reading this book if when i saw spanish civil war if that was the first time i'd even heard that term or if i had just like because it Sounded familiar, but there's lots of civil wars, right? <laughs> Have you learned about this? No, you didn't. And uh, the sense that the book uh, gives you of the Spanish Civil War was that essentially all of the Western nations that uh, ended up fighting against Hitler, including Canada, United States, and Britain, were all very friendly and supportive of the fascist side of the Spanish Civil War, correct? Correct. So the Spanish Civil War, basically, there's a kind of left government in a democratically elected left government in place in um, in Spain, largely kind of in response to some economic crises that are going to build into the Great Depression that kind of push a lot of this around the world. But there's this democratically elected left government and uh, the military, there's a technically a military coup. Uh, Francisco Franco overthrows the government and there's a big long war. So now we have never heard about this war. I mean, it's not a thing we talk about in Canada. But in Germany and in Italy, this was a huge thing. They supported Franco. They sent in troops. They sent military equipment. They sent right. all this stuff. Hitler to helped the shit out of that guy, right? Absolutely. And so we the, were like, yeah. So that fascist, anti-communist, sort of right-wing group is getting all this support from Hitler, from Mussolini, from that right. kind of fascist right. So what's the left, what's happening to the left here? Like, what are other places doing? So what's Britain doing? What's Canada doing? What are they, like you said, they supported the fascists, but like, were they also sending military? Like, did they, what were they, what did oh, we do? I, I, well, I remember about the Spanish Civil War that we made it illegal to go help the other side, right? Like, there were Canadians that wanted to go help the left-wing government, It like, who was under attack, right? And we made it illegal to do that. I remember that. Like, it was like, you're, that's a law. Like, yeah. yeah. So not only are we not giving support in the way that, like, Hitler and Mussolini were to Franco, we weren't giving support to that democratically elected government, but we also banned people, individuals, from supporting them in any way that they, right. they would. So basically the right wing, these fascists, are all like helping each other gain power. And the Western democracies, all of that's in quotation marks, are kind of just sitting it out. They're like, we don't want to get involved in this. Well, we actually had, was it by then already that we had had well, I guess by Spanish Civil War for sure, because before World War II, I was really also kind of surprised to learn just how many sort of like uh, fascist slash Nazi slash clubs or whatever that existed in Canada. Like Quebec was a big haven for that. Like how much fascism was like, it was, it was basically like we didn't, we weren't even like there were people that were like pro Hitler at that time. Like before, like I didn't even think like I thought it was like 
you're sort of taught that like we just found out about this guy that was just gonna like committing genocide of Jewish people and we were like let's go kill him as a as a group and we all went over and <laughs> killed him and like I, I was like I thought like people just sort of found out about him when they found out about that but he was fairly well known before we ever went to war with him and he had like a public he had public support in Canada like quite a bit absolutely and yeah. never hid any of this stuff that was the plan. So why? What's going on here? Why are Canadians, why is the Canadian government and Canadians kind of in general, why are they like, cool, 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 you guys do your thing. We're going to stay out of this battle. We don't want anything to do with what's going on. Why? What's our concern here? Well, the guys of the left would be worker, you know, good for the workers, which is bad for capitalism. Period. Right. Yeah. Super simple. I yeah. mean, this is the thing. And this is what's interesting about it is that the left was more feared than the right. Yeah, well, we didn't like communism already, right? Mm -hmm. And we were not at all... Like, if you read about... Like I was saying, like, if you hear about the way our leaders talked about Hitler and fascism and, like, Mussolini and... They were pretty pro all of that stuff, right? Like, they were admirers of these people because of, like, nationalism and whatnot was something that we aspired to. We were learning how, like, this was a feasible and reasonable way to keep capitalism going, right? Fasc like, we were a country that had just and was continuing to, uh, like, eradicate a people at home. Like, we... Like, we were not about, like, I, so I think the book said basically, like, we didn't even really care, it seemed like, about the whole genocide thing until public opinion started to kind of sway towards, like, hey, it's bad that we're killing Jewish people right now. Because we were turning away boats of Jewish people saying, like, you can't come here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is what I find so fascinating about uh, this kind of period of history and the way we're taught it versus the way it actually was, is that, you know, World War II is framed as the just war, right? It's the great war. We've discovered that there was this asshole trying to take over Europe, and he had this horrible idea of what um, that meant. It was like this Aryan nation, kind of all white. He was going to force this onto us, um, and we had to go and stop him, or else we'd all be speaking German and we'd all, you know, there'd be no Jews, there'd be whatever, all the things. That's that the happened. one you hear always when you're yeah. like, we'd be speaking German. Like, that's like, like the whole fight for freedom. Like, what were we free? What you have to be free from something, right? <laughs> so, like, free countries, what are we free from? Like, I, you grew up thinking we were free from the tyranny of Germany, basically. <laughs> like, it was just like, oh, I just, I can't believe how, like, simply and, like, just sort of fictionally they, like, present how this stuff went. And it just, everybody eats it up. They're like, yeah, we are the good guys. Oh, it's yeah, crazy. Yeah, we did destroy this group that was being horrible. And, like, Shipley really does remind people constantly that, like, hey, there was... Hitler was a shitty dude, and he did need to go down, and there were people that fought in that war, like, individual soldiers that fought in that war because they were trying to take down this fascist piece of shit, and they should be recognized for that. That's all there, but it doesn't change the truth behind the fact that we, as uh, 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 the Allies, did not give a shit until he expanded into a place we didn't think you like we were fine like go and murder so all the soviets we don't care right but it wasn't until they went into poland that we were like and was it because like poland was part of the british empire or something that we like where was it why was it specifically poland because it wasn't those weren't the first jews that we were there was so much on like our leaders there were they were pro kind of get the rid of the Jews at that point. So what was it about Poland that made us go, okay, now we're... Yeah, I mean, this is the question that's often raised about, or the justification for why it was a just war, because it wasn't that Poland was part of the British Empire. It was just sort of that was the the breaking point. You know, that was the like straw that broke the camel's back when they realized that Germany wasn't going to stop at the eastern border, right? They 
they were just going to keep going and they were going to expand. Like, it was all great when Germany was just going to focus on those damn commies to the east. Great. Like, beat the hell out of those guys. Um, but once he starts moving into challenging for territory and colonies and other things from the British Empire, then we have a problem. Can I, like, read this? Is, I want to read just a piece of Mackenzie King's diary after talking to Hitler. So this is the Prime Minister of Canada talking about Adolf Hitler um, before, obviously this is before the war, but nonetheless, this is how we looked at him. I then thanked him again for having given me the privilege of so long an interview. He smiled very pleasantly and indeed had a sort of appealing and affectionate look in his eyes. My sizing up of the man as I sat and talked with him was that he is really one who truly loves his fellow men and his country, and would make any sacrifice for their good, that he feels himself to be a deliverer of his people from tyranny. To understand Hitler, one has to remember his limited opportunities in his early life, his imprisonment, etc. It is truly marvelous what he has attained unto himself through his self-education. His face is much more prepossessing than his pictures would give the impression of. It is not that of a fiery, overstrained nature, but of a calm, passive man, deeply and thoughtfully in earnest. His skin was smooth. His face did not present lines of fatigue or weariness. His eyes impressed me most of all. There, are, there was a liquid quality about them which indicate keen perception and profound sympathy. He was a very nice, sweet, and one could see how particular, how particularly humble folk would come to have a profound love for the man. As I talked with him, I could not but think of Joan of Arc. He is distinctly a mystic. That's the fucking Prime Minister of Canada talking about Adolf Hitler. So if anybody, and that's taken right from his own diary. And so do the people that think that, like, there is some sort of, like, argument about whether like we were what Shipley's saying in this book is like the truth of what we really were about like that's right there we admired that guy that guy talked about Hitler like he wanted to date him like it was eerie the way he admired what they did and like I said like we it goes on to talk about more but we did not as like Britain us anyone nobody gave a shit until we thought, oh, cripe, now, like, he's he's going the wrong direction. Like, he, we were okay with him expanding that way, but we this was our side, that's your side. He kind of, like, siblings that stepped their toe over the line, and now we're having a fight. We were pals with that guy. Huge pals. Anyway. When did grown men stop? Keeping diaries. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is really sad as a historian, especially because we've lost these things like his diaries in particular. Mackenzie King is quite a character. Um, like not only was he an admirer of Hitler, but I mean, he had seances to talk to his dead mother to get political advice. Um, he was um, a bachelor his whole life and just had this like, he was very strange, strange individual. But that quote I find so interesting because, you know, in the middle, there was like basically a bootstrap strappery argument yeah. right like he pulled himself up by his bootstraps he yep. made something of himself yeah and what he does is he's fighting the communists yep and we hate communists mm -hmm. not we at this, this table is, yeah no, but we, we as a country hate yeah, communists and right. we hate them more than we hate fascists right because fascists are actually on our side fascists are supporting capitalism so this interesting yeah. thing happens where when capitalism goes into crisis it has to save itself. So capitalism has a sort of natural crisis model, right? Like it goes through booms and busts and it's a natural state of affairs. So when it goes into crisis, something has to happen to bring it back into stasis or bring it back into kind of popularity. So let's think about what's happening here. We have World War One, where we had all sorts of working class people sent to die in the trenches in horrible conditions. They come back, they're treated like garbage. They aren't allowed to unionize. Their strikes are, are, are broken. All this kind of crap is happening. In the 1920s, we see a big boom. Capitalism's back. Like we get that roaring 20s thing where for five minutes, capitalism's doing great. And then 1929 hits. 
And the Great Depression starts with the stock market crash in, in 1929. And for the next 10 years, the globe is basically racked in economic crisis. There's droughts across North America. There's, um, you know, economic fallout everywhere around the world, the whole globe. And so what happens when that happens, right? When a crisis of economics happens, of capitalism, we see the rise of the left on the one side saying, okay, look, capitalism's a problem. Clearly, look at what it's doing to you. During the Great Depression, we see a lot of workers groups and others saying like, look at what this fucking system is doing for you. And then we see the rise of nationalism that says it's not capitalism, it's the that guy over there that's 100%. causing your problem whether that guy is poor people or that guy is brown people or that guy is jews or that guy is whatever you create an enemy you create this like we're on a team together which people fucking love that camaraderie right like you love being able to be like fly the flag and we're all in the same thing right and you play that up 100 percent. And... <laughs> and the point of that is to get everybody's attention off of capitalism Capitalism's not the problem. The real problem is something else. Now, those people who have to protect capitalism have to come up with a what's the other thing, right? And we're seeing this now as well. The exact same problem is arising where capitalism is in crisis, especially since 2008. We're seeing a rise on the left. We're seeing a lot more people talk about socialism and be interested in it. The Democratic Socialists of America are huge. And so at the same time, we're seeing people say, wait, the problem's not capitalism. Don't think about capitalism. Think about these other people to blame. Communists are first. <laughs> then Jews. This is during World War I. This is kind of the hierarchy. There's the poem, the famous poem. First they came for the communists. Then they came for the, Jew, uh, the socialists. Then they came for the trade unionists. And Shipley does a really good job of showing that that's connected on purpose. That we, the whole point of the Holocaust and of kind of the, the rise of fascist right in, in, in the 1930s was to, um, to defeat communism, was to defeat the left. And all those groups start getting lumped in. We'll start with this small group of communists. Yeah. Then we'll get a bit bigger and talk about socialists, then trade unionists. And then we have this Bolshevik disease of the Jews. So we have to get rid of them too. And we're all cool, cool, cool with that as a country because we also want to save capitalism. Well, it's always been about, it's always been about like and for decades and decades and decades right up until today right it's always about socialism is bad communism bad really the same word in a lot of ways right but i think like what's been so skillfully done and maybe it was sort of set up to be an easy thing to do but like earlier in the pod i suggested that we equate capitalism and democracy as the same thing and therefore we also just in one in one sort of brainwave equate communism and dictatorship as mm -hmm. the same thing right and we we like there have been single party single state like party states that you can discuss that that's problematic that have nothing to do with whether your economic system is communism or capitalism and that's i think where like a huge disconnect where as soon as you bring up communism or socialism you it's a conversation stopper with people because they don't think of it as you're talking about just the economy. They think of it as you're talking about like a, a supreme ruler kind of thing. Right. And so that's where I think people get really uh, still can still to this day. Like it's really hard to talk about this stuff because you say, well, this is all to defeat communism. And I could just hear people, who would listen be like, yeah, well, what's wrong with that? We, we should, should. Right. <laughs> we should defeat communism. And it's like, no, we, that's the point, I think, is that we, part of us shaping things like Vimy Ridge a certain way or our relations with indigenous people a certain way is to shape uh, the opposing economic system a certain way and to shape communism as this big, terrible, evil thing that has, like... Anyway, there's nothing to do with whether or not, like, the economic side of it. it just has to, they always equate it to this human rights thing. And yeah. we're always, yeah. 
Anyway. Well, and I think one of the interesting things that Shipley talks about that I think leftists try and highlight a lot is that it's the Soviet Union that defeats Hitler. It's not the Allies. It's the Soviet Union. They yeah. took the brunt of World War II. The Eastern Front was really where the battles happened. The death was unbelievable, the death toll. Well, we also refused to even help them, right? Absolutely. Like, we did not like, send you nobody. You. Yeah, yeah, they they held, the Soviets held that side by themselves. Yeah. Shit like Normandy and stuff like that wasn't even till the war was nearly over. It was, it was like a year a left yeah. when we landed there, the Western troops. So, like, this idea that we were these big fucking players or whatever, I just find, like, the truth really is... Well, we very... can't admit that the Soviet <laughs> Union did so much because then we're saying that maybe the communists aren't the worst enemy, right? Yeah. If we give them credit for what they did to defeat the fascists... We're saying they're maybe not as bad as we thought they were. And yeah. so that can't hold. And so we have to we have to diminish that. One of the things I thought stuck out, I mean, that really, really I found fascinating was his discussion of the use of the nuclear bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. Where he talked about how, like, the war was literally over. over. Like, they were already ready to surrender. But they were more afraid of the communists of the Soviet Union than they were of the Americans. And so they let the Americans, like, they surrendered to, the Japanese were more more afraid of yeah. that so they would rather go with the people who dropped an atomic bomb on them yeah and surrendered to them so that capitalism could survive that's actually what i like i always because you wondered one of the things i wondered growing up i guess was like some of these enemies from these wars like take world war ii we were enemies with italy germany and japan right and then you grew when you when we were born we were already we were friends with all these places so it was Japan's like how did great. how did that happen right like where did this happen and it was just I, I thought it was really interesting to explain the way he did touch on that. How, like, and I think a lot of people now have heard the truth about how the Soviet Union was about to like, squash Japan. They were there, ready to take over, ready to end it. And, and Japan essentially, uh, we, we, or he, Truman dropped those two bombs anyway to show kind of might and like whatnot. But. On top of that, like what you were saying about how Japan was kind of like, yeah, we'll just let you guys uh, defeat us and we'll surrender to you because your fascist, like your capitalism is closer to our fascism than these crazy communists who are about to take over uh, Japan. And so at least you'll let us go back to our capitalistic exactly. fascist ways when you're done bombing us exactly <laughs> that you're gonna up. pretend that you're gonna come in and, and put in democracy or whatever you're gonna call it all this stuff we'll get into in the next part of the book yeah. um but the reality was it was about saving capitalism and i think that's it's so interesting to think about like all these little pieces that pop out from this story like i wrote down the thing about fanta fanta was one of my favorite drinks because i loved it yeah, from the middle east truman's favorite too it's great uh. when you travel it comes in glass bottles uh. in the south it's so great and then you discover that Fanta was created so that Coca-Cola could still sell products in the fascist Nazi Germany. They and needed not to get, get caught behind. for it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> not getting shit from the Western, quote, democracies for it. I mean, these things are happening all the time where, you know, all these people, Henry Ford was a fascist. He was an anti-Semite, like you wouldn't believe. All these people loved fascism. And the thing that worries me and I think is so valuable about reading these books is that we're seeing the exact same thing happen right now. That the we're in a crisis of capitalism and so we're seeing the same response we're seeing the rise of fascism and that's going to be more popular than the left because the capitalists are going to embrace fascism because it's their way to save it look what's happening in alberta like we are governed by fascists who are trying to save capitalism a very particular petrochemical capitalism but they are trying to save capitalism and this is their way of doing it and that's terrifying to me. Like, are we in 1933? Like, are we kind of right at that beginning where we're all appeasing fascists? Um, you know, the People's Party of Canada gets to do all this stuff and gets electoral credibility and gets to be well, considered. I, are we letting that happen to defeat the like, left? Like, I just think that that's like, this is where I think this book really gives you a great understanding of why now is like now, mm -hmm. because it's, the simplest answer is it's not changed from what it's always been like this. Like I was saying to you the other day, I was saying like I had this naive 
idea that some of these, like this in Canada, this Republican style politics sort of came around with Preston Manning and the Reform Party or whatever, and then they took over. But man, it's just like every, it's been around forever, right? Like we have always been a friend to the fascist side. Like it's weird that we were, like, that's like, it's weird that we were the enemy of each other in that war because we were on the same side for so many things. And I think one of the ways that it really hammers that point home is at the end of the war, when they split West and East Germany and the West, like the allies, we put former Nazis in charge of West Germany and then spent the next decades talking about how the West Germany was better than the East Germany. And, like, we grew up thinking, like, all oh, these commie East Germans, right? Ah, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall or whatever. Like, we took either sympathizers or actual former Nazis and gave them the power of West Germany at the end of that war. Well, not only that, but we brought a shit ton of them over here right. to work in our government, to work as scientists, to work as all sorts of things. We were, again, cool, cool, cool with the fascists because they're better than communists, right? Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. Like, we, all around the world, you see support for fascists and for Nazis, and it's rising because we're, it's, we're in the similar situation. And I think what's good about looking into this past and understanding, like you said, Scott, that this is all the same thing, is that we know what's coming and we have to try and stop it. We have to work against yeah. that, that we shouldn't be all cool, cool, cool with the yeah. fascists. Right. Like, it's actually bad. Pe people talk <laughs> about it all the time. Like, how can, how, it's crazy. We have Nazis in North America. We always have. That's the, like the, another thing I th found crazy was like we had actual swastika clubs in Canada before World War II. We had all of that here. Everything that you see now and it's presented to you right away in social media, whatever. And so we're more aware of these. It's always been here. There's always been that faction, that sort of faction of our country that has been that way and they've always sort of been the thing that wins out at the end of the day with maybe by the time it gets down to canadian people uh by canadian people i mean white canadians <laughs> yeah. it is sort of filtered down to a way that it seems like uh reasonable and like we, we treat each other with human rights but it's always been that that's it's just been here forever that's what i think was like so important to understand was that like this rise of fascism isn't rising from nothing it's always just been lying there waiting mm -hmm. to come back again right well and i think what's interesting for shipley is that that's the core of canada i think that's his argument is that that's always going to be there because it's the very core of how we were founded as this capital colonial state and and we need yeah. to reckon with that i think is important anything else you guys want to add before we wrap up this version of the book club mo you haven't said much in a while anything kind of stick yeah. out that you want to yeah, talk the about the last page where it talks about how we still managed to be awful to indigenous people i thought that like it's obviously an awful thing but it was a very interesting way to end the chapter i should read that sentence actually that yeah. he says where he because, connects it together oh my yeah. god it's such a well written like it's such a go sit the fuck down sentence but um well, no. anyways and then you have to sort of read um the other stuff to understand uh, all of this, but it's just this last sentence. It is re a remarkable footnote to the quote, good war that it should end with Canada killing indigenous people in order to build a weapon to kill Japanese people in order to win a war that had already been won in order to preserve the capitalist character of Japan. And that's after like the sort of him talking about what we were just talking about, how they would much rather have surrendered to us who blew them up because we had a similar economic system. Yeah. Um, and the nuclear bomb is actually really good for Canada because it's uh, our uranium. We're selling right. all this uranium. So hey, whoopee for us. We made yep. lots of money off of this. Right. It's all about money. Awesome. Well, this was a great, I think, part two of our book club. Next part will be part three. We'll do that in a month. Um, that one, we're going to move into the post-war period and the Cold War, which should be really interesting. Um, so hopefully our listeners enjoyed this episode and will join us for the next one. Um, I will let you thank our Patreons since I don't 
actually know them. <laughs> <laughs> this is where my hosting duties right, officially right. end. <laughs> well, maybe Jeremy will catch up in the book and meet us here for the be, be back for the next uh, episode. But it was really cool to record with you guys in the same room. Yeah, this was awesome. Um, and I get you know it is like a you know maybe a. a a lot of people like I don't reading books is hard to get to right like I think like you know there'll be people that are listening to this that are like I don't know you know probably not going to read the book or whatever I mean it's just one of those ones where I think when you get into it you'll find that it's really hard to stop and um, I find it I don't know maybe it's because I'm at a different place but I find it almost comforting to learn some of this stuff in a way because I am finally like at a, ch- a place where I can truly accept that like where how we got here wasn't like done in this glorious peacekeeping unviolent way right and that it didn't just stop we didn't just finish killing indigenous people and getting rid of them and say okay well now we're going to be the crusaders of good in the world like this is tactics that we have always done and it is really it really has just been always about protecting a silly economic system that doesn't even fucking take care of the people in the countries that are fighting for it that's the thing that blows my mind. But anyway, it's the time in the show where we thank our patrons who go well above and beyond our fucking uh, anything we could ever ask for. To Dave Bond Miller, to Chris Sterwold, to Big Red Machine, to Nicola Dinicola, and to... Who am I forgetting? Oh, Darius Beargard. Shit. I, I can do it off the top of my head, so you got to give me credit for That's that. But anyways, good. thank you guys for uh, all that you do for us. And uh, to everyone else, thanks for coming. Um, Get this book, read it, and uh, yeah, we'll see you next week.